pray together. Indeed, Lord, no one would have dreamed of the glory of what you've done. And we ask now that you would cause us to feel how powerful you are and cause us to experience the world as you describe it in the scriptures. So, Lord, fill our minds with your truth. Convince us that you are going to judge the powers of heaven in the heavens and the hosts of the earth on the earth. We ask that you do this for us, that we might fear you, that we might trust you, that we might know you and love you and live as we should. We pray it by faith in Christ. Amen. As I, saw, as I thought of Psalm 82, which I would invite you to open your Bible to this morning, I couldn't help but think of John Milton's poem, this great epic poem, Paradise Lost. And I'm afraid to start reading this because if I start reading it, I, I won't want to stop. So I'm going to try to resist the impulse to read, from you, read to you from Paradise Lost. But in the opening pages of the poem, Milton describes Satan having been thrown down from heaven. And, and it, it's magnificent the way he describes this scene because you, you slowly begin to realize that you're dealing with, with a power, a, a spiritual being who is being described as, as so large that his bulk has to be measured in acres. So he is massive and he has been so stunned by the power of the Almighty in heaven who has hurled him down after his rebellion that he lay unconscious for nine days. I mean, this is a lot more than a ten count, right? So God defeated his, his ancient foe, and then he cast him down. And then as Satan comes to, having laid there for nine days, his only thought is to continue the rebellion. He has learned nothing from the defeat. And, and he, even, he even, as he discusses the situation with Beelzebub, his, his next in line, they discuss together how there's really no hope. And really their only, their only hope arises from their despair because they, they are, they're acknowledging we have no ability to overcome Almighty God. So all we can do is perhaps grieve him a little. But they are committed to wreaking as much havoc and causing as much pain both to humanity and to God as they possibly can. And, and I thought of that uh, as I was looking at Psalm 82 because the scene in Psalm 82 is a scene of judgment. It's a scene of judgment in a divine council. And, you know, there are some interpreters that look at this psalm and they think that human judges are in view, but I'm convinced that these are spiritual powers and principalities to whom God is speaking words of judgment here in Psalm 82. So I would invite you to, to look at it with me. And as we approach Psalm 82, uh, let me just back up a little bit from this psalm and, um, and give you a little bit of the, the lead in from, um, from, from earlier psalms. But before I do that, I want to give an apology, a brief apology, uh, for the fact that we're preaching Psalm 82 and 83. I'm preaching Psalm 82 and 83 on the Sunday before Christmas. Um, 
You may think, isn't this strange? Why doesn't our church do like other churches? They have these nice Christmas series in the lead up to Christmas Day. Why, why couldn't he just preach a Christmas text? We all want to feel good about Jesus being born. Well, what I want to say to you is, this is a Christmas text. This is a Christmas text, and I submit to you that this is so much better than me trying to come up with some, you know, warm, fuzzy, feel-good Christmas text in the lead up to Christmas. This is so much better because I don't think any of us would have dreamed of how this text applies to Christmas. This, these two Psalms, 82 and 83, they really do apply to Christmas. Here's how. The judgment that is described here is a judgment that God accomplishes through the birth of the baby. God is going to pull this off. God is going to, to speak judgment against these powers in the heavenlies through what Paul describes in Colossians 2 when he writes in Colossians 2.15 that God the Father disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is, in Jesus. So I submit to you that this is a, this is a kind of angle on Christmas that we don't typically think about. This is, an, this is a, a way, a perspective on Christmas that probably would not even, I wouldn't have thought of this had we not just been marching straight through the scriptures and in God's good providence, we land at Psalms 82 and 83 and we get to consider the fact that God is going to triumph over the powers in the heavens through the babe that's going to be born. Now let's, let's think about this, this flow of thought in the Psalms for just a moment. Um, if, if you look back at Psalm 78, you have this long psalm that is a history of Israel's disobedience. We, we looked at that several weeks ago. And, and after that history of disobedience, you have Psalm 79 where the holy temple in verse 1 has been defiled. Now, now just think about that in the flow of Israel's history. It was their disobedience to the covenant, their breaking of the covenant, that eventually led to the destruction of the temple. And, and even before it was destroyed, finally in 586 B.C., there were various occasions where uh, enemy armies came and they, they ravaged the temple in different ways. So it's disobedience followed by threat to the temple in Psalm 79. And then in Psalm 80, there's this refrain, like what you see in verse 3, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And then that's repeated uh, in verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So history of disobedience, destruction to the temple, prayers for restoration. And then at the end of Psalm 80, look down at verse 15, where there's this reference to the Son, whom you have made strong for yourself. And then verse 17, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. So, so there's this hope for the future ruler, isn't there? The future king from the line of David who will be God's son in a unique way. And then Psalm 81, which we looked at last week, refers to the feast day in verse 3. And uh, it, it's interesting that these feasts that were celebrated in Israel, they celebrated God's mighty acts of salvation in the past, and they were instituted to be commemorated year by year to teach Israel to expect God to do this kind of thing in the future. And then when you go look at the New Testament, uh, the New Testament is claiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. He's the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then he's the fulfillment of the Feast of Pentecost when he pours out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is the fulfillment of the feasts. And then we come to Psalm 82, 
and its judgment on the wicked powers in the heavens. This is a very intriguing flow of thought in the Psalms. Israel's disobedience, destruction of the temple, prayers for restoration, and then fulfillment of the feasts, and now judgment on the powers in the heavens. It, it, it's really remarkable how, how nicely this matches with what happens in the New Testament. So look with me, if you would, at Psalm 82, and, and let's work through this psalm together. We read here in verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council. And um, I, I would encourage you to, to uh, not, not put any governors on your imagination. You know, if you've got a go-kart and you put a governor on it, what you're doing is you're trying to gear that thing down so that it won't go too fast. Don't put any governors on your imagination. Let your imagination run wild with the thought of the divine council. We're talking about powers in the heavenlies. We're talking about these mighty spiritual beings. And then God arrives, and he takes his place. In the midst of the gods, we read here in verse 1, he holds judgment. So they've all been called to account. Now, who are these, these powers in the heavens? Well, let, let me take you to a number of, of... You don't have to turn here if you don't want to. I just want to read a few statements to you. There's this statement in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19 where Moses is saying to Israel, Deuteronomy 4.19, he says, Beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. And, and what Moses is saying is, those powers in the heavens that all these other peoples worship, those have not been allotted to you. So you're not to worship them. But it assumes the existence, doesn't it, of these powers in the heavens. And then there's this statement over in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, a reference that Matt brought to my attention this morning. Uh, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And if you, if you remember Job 1 there was a day when the sons of God came to appear before the Lord and Satan came among them. I think the same kind of idea is here, uh, that, that the, the nations are numbered according to the, according to the number uh, or their, their uh, boundaries are fixed according to the number of these, and these demonic powers. And then you have um, that, that passage that we opened with in our call to worship this morning from Isaiah chapter 24, which refers to the Lord... Um, intending to, to punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. And then the reason that we read Daniel 10 uh, earlier in the service, the reason Amos read Daniel 10 is because there's this reference there. Uh, Michael is saying that as he came to Daniel, this prince of Persia, this spiritual force that is somehow connected to the kingdom of Persia, opposed him. And then after the prince of Persia has done his work, then the prince of Greece is going to rise up and oppose uh, Michael and the people of God. The Bible is teaching us that there is an unseen spiritual realm of powers and, and that these, these things are at work in the world. This is a point at which we need to reject what our culture holds about these things. Our culture would have us believe that the world exists as a closed system of cause 
and effect. The culture in effect says there's an iron dome over us that is impermeable. It's a buffer. And there's, there, there are no, there's no porous relationship between an unseen spiritual reality and the reality that we exist, that, that we experience. The culture would have us believe that there's nothing out there. That is not what the Bible is teaching us. And uh, I want to relate to you a story that I heard Tim Keller uh, tell. Uh, a way in which this really, this is really more affirming to people and more... Um, more uh, positive in its relationship to all the peoples of the earth than the secular, sort of closed-minded, illiberal uh, worldview that the culture wants to impose upon us. So Tim Keller told this story of, of a man who had come from Africa, and he had come into the United States, and he was studying at an Ivy League institution. And uh, this man related how uh, he, he began to realize that at this Ivy League school, um, they wanted to affirm his multiculturalism, but it was stripped of all its meaning because they're teaching him, all, all of his multiculturalism was related to demonic forces and various gods and goddesses and, and various uh, ritual uh, activities. And so, so his traditional African garb that he wore, it was all tied in with that worldview that he had that he had believed back in Africa. And then he came to the United States and they told him that all of that was false. That there were no powers, there were no forces, there were no gods and goddesses, but we still want you to wear your traditional African garb now that it's meaningless because we like the diversity of it. But really it's a, it's a totalitarian kind of intellectual uh, response to this guy, isn't it? There's no meaning to what you believe. But we still want you to dress as though there's meaning to it. And, and, and what this guy, what, what he experienced was eventually he became a Christian. And he found that Christianity affirmed his Africanness. Because what he found in Christianity is, it's not, it's not telling me there are no powers and there are no gods. No, it's telling me I don't need to fear them anymore. And I don't need to uh, engage in these, these rituals anymore because Jesus has conquered the powers. And Jesus, he, he's affirming the existence of these things that did torment me back in Africa, but he's delivering me from the fear of all these things because as we read here in Psalm 82, God is going to call them to account. God is going to triumph over them. And, and in this way, he found that his traditional African garb and so forth, it, it could actually add color and diversity and splendor to the worship of the true and living God, and all of its meaning was affirmed. So it's, a, it's, it's better than the secular version of things. And, and here in Psalm 82, the Lord calls these gods to account. He says to them here in verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So what, he's, what, what, the, what the Lord is doing is he is calling these guys to account for wicked decisions. These judges have had cases come before them, and they have looked at the evidence, and they have seen who is guilty and who is innocent. And you know, I think in a situation like this, with these powers, it's not like, it's not like our situation. We have cases uh, in our justice system where the evidence is presented 
And one side makes its case, and you think, oh, that person's guilty. And then the other side comes and makes its case, and you think, well, maybe this person's innocent. And then people of different backgrounds, they might look at that evidence, and they might think of it, they might regard the evidence differently, depending on their feeling about the courts or the police or, or whatever. Everybody's got different estimates. Well, not with these judges. These judges are going to know definitively who's innocent and who's guilty. So this is not a mistake in justice. This is a willful corruption of justice that these wicked powers have engaged in. As they've said, we are deciding for the wicked. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? The Lord asks them. And then at the end of that verse, Selah, inviting us to reflect on this reality. And then having indicted them for what they do, they judge unjustly, they show partiality to the wicked in verse 2. The Lord speaks to them of what they should have done in verses 3 and 4. And you'll notice that in verses 3 and 4, these two verses are tied together by all these references. Look at verse 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Verse 4, rescue the weak and the needy. So all of those, those ways are referring to the weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, the weak, the needy. These are people that don't have defenders. In the ancient world, your father was your defender. And if you're fatherless, well, people can take advantage of you. And, and if you're weak, you can't defend yourself. And, and if you're afflicted and destitute, you have no recourse to any help. And what the Lord is saying to these, these evil principalities and powers in the heavenlies is you should have defended these needy people. What, he, what he's doing is he's saying to them, you, you decided the case in favor of the wicked. And in doing that, you neglected to consider the victimized, the abused, the violated. And you should have thought about those people when you were, when you were weighing the merits of the case. And instead, you went with the powerful who were in the wrong. So what they, were, what they should have done was they should have defended the weak and the fatherless. They should have maintained the right of the afflicted and the destitute. They should have rescued the weak and the needy, delivering them from the hand of the wicked. And they did not do that. They were wicked in their justice. And, 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 and so what they, what they were doing is in verse 2. What they should have done is in verses 3 and 4. And now in verse 5, you have the Lord's conclusion on them. And he concludes in verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. Now, this is very interesting, I think. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. These powers being indicted are a lot smarter than we are. These powers, these, these uh, uh, divine heavenly beings that, that the Lord is calling to account here, they have a lot more information at their disposal. They are aware of a lot more of reality than we are. But they don't have knowledge. They don't have understanding. It's, it's, it's like what is stated over in Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs 28 says this, 
It says in verse 5, evil men do not understand justice. Evil men do not understand justice. I think that sometimes children don't understand justice, you know? You're talking to a child. That's not fair. That's not right. You know, you're right. That's not fair. Uh, you got a great life. That's not fair. You got everything you could, you could possibly need. That's not fair. And, and just because somebody else gets a privilege that you don't get, this doesn't make the world unjust, right? But evil men do not understand justice. I, I was talking with a, a fellow pastor um, this week, and he was, he was saying to me, he said to me, I'm sure you've experienced this, where um, as, as the church begins to call someone to repentance, if, if they're unrepentant, if they're unregenerate, if they're not believers, and you begin to call them to account for their iniquity, and you begin to call them back to righteousness, what they, what they, the way they respond, well, that person over there, well, the, well he did that. Well, you're, 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 this is none of your business. It's all this blaming. Evil men do not understand justice. But then look what the verse goes on to say there in verse 5. Those who seek the Lord understand it completely. If, if you seek the Lord, if you get exposed to God's holiness, all of a sudden you realize, huh, you, you understand what justice is. Justice would be for me to go to hell. A long time ago. Justice would be for me to have access to none of the privileges that I enjoy. Those who seek the Lord understand it perfectly. So I think the, the knowledge and the understanding that are being described here in Psalm 82 verse 5, this is not about awareness of facts. This is a, a kind of knowledge and a kind of understanding that arises from the fear of the Lord. It arises from knowing God, and, and you begin to understand that God is king, and that we're obligated to him, and, and then everything else begins to find its proper place. But because of the way that these powers have ordered things, they have neither knowledge nor understanding, they walk about in darkness, and then at the end of verse 5, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. This is describing societal instability. It's describing a crisis in civilization that's resulting from the injustice at the highest level you can imagine, right? It's not just human injustice. It's not just systemic injustice that's built into the society. This is injustice at the level of the gods that are worshipped in the society. And because things are fouled up there, everything is messed up. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And then the Lord begins his verdict in verse 6. He says to them, I said, you are gods. Now what he's saying to them is, I gave you your position of authority. I installed you. I granted you this responsibility. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. So the Lord is, is communicating to them, you would have had nothing had I not given it to you. And I entrusted you with this charge in order for you to do righteousness. And you have done wickedness. And then he says in verse 7, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. In other words, you are receiving 
the death sentence. You are going to be punished like man is punished. Adam sinned. Uh, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. You have sinned like Adam, like man. You will die, and you will fall like any prince. Now, just a, just a kind of uh, somewhat related observation here. It's interesting. If, if, you, if you keep a finger here in Psalm 82 and look back at Psalm 8, um, the Lord says, or, or David says here in Psalm 8, when he says in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. And then verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Oh, and if you look at the ESV footnote there, it's got or than God. It, it's, it's the same term here. So you've got, you know, son of man and then God. What is man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than God's. And now here in Psalm 82, we've got you. He's addressing the gods. You are God's. Sons of the Most High, that's really interesting. Nevertheless, like men, like man, you will die. Uh, just a, it's just a very interesting inversion of Psalm 8 there. Um, the passage that Denny read in John 10, Jesus quotes this passage. Now, here, here's, here's the logic, I think, of, of the way that Jesus quotes this passage over in John chapter 10. You, you remember that Jesus said... Um, he, 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 he refers to himself as, um, he says, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? So what Jesus is saying seems to go like this. I was with the divine council. I was there. And, and God is addressing that divine counsel, saying to them in Psalm 82, I said, you are God's, Elohim. And now Jesus is the one whom the Father has consecrated and sent into the world. And he's saying, why do you say that I'm blaspheming if I say I'm the son of God? And you remember in, the, in Psalm 82, I said, you are God's and sons of the Most High. So I think Jesus is saying something like, um, God says the kinds of things that I'm saying about myself to other spiritual powers, why are you saying that I'm blaspheming? And, and what he's pressing upon them is, do you believe my claims or not? He, what he's exposing is, you don't believe that the Father has sent me. You don't believe that I existed in the, the divine council and that the Father consecrated me and sent me into the world. I think that's the way the logic is going in that passage. So the Lord has announced the death sentence, the verdict, in Psalm 82, 6 and 7. And when will this be fulfilled? Well, in Revelation chapter 20, uh, we read that um, uh, Satan is going to be seized, and the beast and the false prophet, these demonic forces, they are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And in Revelation 20, verse 14, we read, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So, so the death that these folks are going to die is going to be an everlasting torment in the lake of fire. That's where that is actualized. Psalm 82, 6 and 7. Like men, you shall die. They're going to die the second death in the lake of fire. Now, at the end of this psalm, Psalm 82, verse 8, Asaph responds, and he responds with a prayer. He says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, 
for you shall inherit all the nations. Now think about the broader biblical backdrop. The nations have been allotted to these powers. And Asaph is saying, rise up, Lord, and judge the earth because these nations belong to you. You will inherit all the nations. And this again is what is realized, or it's set in motion at least, through the coming of the Lord Jesus. As Jesus goes to the cross in John 12, he says, now is the ruler of this world cast out. Now is he thrown down. And then Jesus goes to the cross. He wins allegiance. He wins the right to exercise dominion uh, over all the earth. He says in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me because of his death and resurrection. Therefore, go. Therefore, go. Because he has all authority. Because all nations are now his to be inherited. Psalm 2, 7. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. Jesus is Lord of all. These powers that God has judged have no claim on the nations of the earth. So if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you're in big trouble (laughs) because you may not realize it, but your allegiance is to one of these defeated, condemned, demonic forces. And and you you need to leave the cause of that failed leader. And you need to bow the knee to the true king, Jesus. And you need to get with his program. And we would love for you to join us here at Kenwood Baptist Church on the program of the Lord Jesus, trying to, to, to take the message to all nations and, and see all nations uh, swear fealty to the true king of heaven and earth. And I'll just insert a note here for believers. One great way to participate that in the month of December is to dig deep in your pockets and give generously to this Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Psalm 82, the Lord judges the serpent who is that ancient uh, uh, dragon, the devil, and Satan. Psalm 83, the focus shifts from the spiritual powers, the serpent, to the seed of the serpent. So in Psalm 83, we're going to have a prayer of Asaph, and Asaph is going to be asking the Lord to do justice on the nations. And so the the powers in the heavens are dealt with in Psalm 82, and now the powers on the earth, the nations allotted to those heavenly powers, are dealt with in Psalm 83. Uh, It opens, Psalm 83, verse 1, with this threefold plea that God would not keep silence. Psalm 83, 1, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. Don't, Don't remain with your mouth closed. And then the reason is given in verse 2. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. Uh, There are some some ways that this psalm is going to have resonance with with significant passages earlier in the Bible. One of the ways is by this word enemies, which even in English, the word enemy is like the word enmity, right? You can hear the kind of similarity between those terms. Well, it's the same way in Hebrew where uh, the ones at enmity is, is what's what are, what are described here, and, and that enmity derives from Genesis 3.15. And you've also got 
um, in, in Genesis 3.15, the Lord's saying, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed, and he will bruise your head, right? Well, those at enmity are raising their heads there in verse 2. And then look at verse 3. They lay crafty plans. And the Hebrew behind that phrase, crafty plans, it's the same terminology used in Genesis 3.1 when, when Moses writes, now the serpent was the craftiest or the most cunning or the shrewdest or how, whatever translation you're looking at. It's the same Hebrew term there. They, they, they're, they're acting like their father, the devil. The serpent, the serpent was crafty and shrewd and they're being crafty and shrewd. And, and if, you're, if you're thinking about other passages in Psalms, when you think about people making plans against God and his people, maybe another psalm comes to mind. One that starts, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Psalm, psalm 2, 1 through 3. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. And, and it's interesting, uh, the, the verb that's used here to describe, to describe them consulting together, and then in verse, verse 5, when it says they conspire with one accord, this is the verb that's related to the word in Psalm 1-1, when it says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Well, even in English, again, to take counsel, you consult. And here... They're consulting together. And this is the counsel of the wicked in which the blessed man doesn't walk. And that counsel of the wicked is the nations conspiring together against the Lord and against his Messiah. They lay their crafty plans against your people, Psalm 83.3. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, and this sounds like Hitler, doesn't it? Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. They want to do genocide against Israel. They want to wipe Israel off the map. They, they, want, uh, they want to give death to the people whom the Lord spoke life. And they want to remove the memory of God's people from the land that God gave to them. It's, it's like a, a Canaanite version of the holy war. But, but their holy war is not righteous. Their holy war is wicked. Verse 5, they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. They are making a covenant against the Lord. So we get this description of what they're trying to do in verses 3 through 5. And then we get them enumerated. We get them identified in verses 5 through, I'm sorry, verses 6 through 8. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites. Now it's interesting here, the, the order of these two, because Edom comes from Esau. And Edom is another name for Esau. And you remember Esau had a brother named Jacob. And Jacob was the chosen one. And Esau sold his birthright. And, and, and Jacob stole his blessing, which was wicked of him to do. But nevertheless, the Lord loved uh, Jacob and hated Esau. And then after Edom, we've got the Ishmaelites. And you remember Ishmael had a brother, and his name was Isaac. And, and so it, it's interesting how the, the, the lines of descent in Genesis are being worked with here. Jacob, not Esau. Isaac, not Ishmael. And then Moab. Maybe you, you remember from Genesis where Moab came from. There's this horrible story about how Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed and Lot escaped from that place. And 
One of Lot's daughters came up with this awful plan to conceive a child through her father, and that child was named Moab. And the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon, Ammon is the son of the other daughter of Lot, by Lot, and Amalek, Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Ashur, which could also be rendered Assyria, also has joined them. Who are these peoples? These are the seed of the serpent. That's who these peoples are. These are the historical enemies of Israel. These are the people that all through the pages of the Old Testament, they've opposed Israel and and tried to keep God's purposes from being realized. And then what Asaph does is he says in verses 9 through 12, he says, do to our enemies now what you've done to our enemies in the past. So look at verse 9. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon. You want to read this story? You go read Judges chapters 4 and 5. Who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Verse 11, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna. You want to read about those guys? You just keep reading after Judges 4 and 5, and you get into the story of Gideon in Judges 6, and Gideon is the one who defeated Midian, and then he chased down Oreb and Zeb and Zeba and Zalmunna. Basically, what Asaph is doing is he's working through the narrative of Judges chapters 4 through 8 and the way that the Lord defeated these enemies of Israel in the past. And he's saying, as you did to our enemies in the, in the past, do that same thing to our enemies in the present. And then look at what they said at, ver- at verse 12, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. So they wanted to, they wanted to seize God's holy land for themselves, and they wanted to wipe out the people of Israel back in verse 4. So they want to kill the people, take the land. And, and Asaph is saying, Lord, this is not your purpose. Your purpose is to give life to your people in this land where you will dwell with them. So verse 13, it's like Asaph says, let me work with the imagery of Psalm 1. You remember Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who doesn't do these things. He'll be like a tree. And then he says, not so the wicked. He will be like chaff that the wind drives away. Verse 13, oh my God, make them, the seed of the serpent, who are named in verses uh, 6 through 12, make them like whirling dust. Maybe you've seen an old Western movie where you've got that tumbleweed rolling through, you know, as the wind drives it away. That's, That's the image. Like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. So Asaph is calling down the wrath of God against the seed of the serpent, the enemies of God's people. And when he says there in verse 15, terrify them with your hurricane, he's using the same verb there that uh, Psalm 2 uses when it says, when it says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Same terminology. Now, why would Asaph want this to happen? Well, he tells us in verses 16 through 18. So, so if, that sounds, if that sounds sort of vicious in verses 13 through 15, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, you know, like, like the fire consumes the forest. If that, look at verse 16. Fill their faces with shame. 
that they may seek your name, O Lord. Asaph wants all their pride pulverized so that they will realize that there's one who's worthy of their worship. They'll realize there's one that they should bow the knee to. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. So it may, not, it, it may sound harsh, but it's redemptive. Asaph wants these guys judged. He wants their pride smashed so that they can know that Yahweh alone is the Almighty. He's, he's hoping that they won't respond the way that Satan responds in Paradise Lost. And this is the way, you should not respond this way. Listen to what Satan says in Paradise Lost. He says, the mind is its own place and in itself, the mind, can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. So what Satan is saying is, when I was in heaven with God, before he kicked me out, I had already made the place a hell. And what he's saying is, now that I'm in hell, I'm going to try to make this into a heaven. It's never going to be successful. He goes on to say, just a few lines down, he says, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Asaph is saying, don't go that way. Asaph is saying, when God hurls you down, when he smashes you, seek him. Know that he alone is Yahweh, most high over all the earth, and your end won't be like men. You shall die and fall like any prince, Psalm 82.7. Rather, you'll enjoy restoration. You'll enjoy the worship of the one who is worthy of your adoration and praise. The Lord Jesus said in Mark 3, 27, that the house could only be plundered if the strong man first was bound. And Jesus bound the strong man through his death and resurrection, and he is in the process of plundering Satan's house as disciples are made of all nations. In Psalm 82, God judges the gods of the nations. In Psalm 83, Asaph prays that God would bring shame on the seed of the serpent. Defeat them that they might turn and worship the Lord. The vine has been planted, Psalm 80, verse 8. The Son of Man has been made strong for God himself. The feasts have been fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus. And when he returns, the great white throne will be set up. And every power in heaven and on earth will answer to the true and living judge. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would put the fear of you into us. Lord, we want to be those who have wisdom, the wisdom that begins with the fear of you. And Lord, we want to be those who are addressed in Psalm 115, 11, you who fear the Lord, 
trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Father, would you do this for us? Would you remove every remaining desire for sin, every remaining spark of rebellion, every remaining hope that we can escape your justice. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be fully submitted to you, fully aware that you are Lord. And we pray, Father, this, this would not only prompt heartfelt worship, but also that it would prompt us to be heralds of the good news, that we would be those who proclaim to all nations that the king has come and that he's returning and that the powers are condemned and that those who turn and bow to the king will be received and shown mercy and restored and welcomed home. We ask that you do all this in the great name of Jesus. Amen.